Hi, welcome to the Great Christian Books Podcast. This is Daniela and John, and this week we're talking about Prodigal God by Timothy Keller. You think that in you have yep, I uh, first read this book in high school. I think my parents actually recommended it to, to me, and I absolutely loved it in high school. Um, I think I've received this book like four times from different individuals, like my Bible study teachers, my pastors. Uh, It's a great book. Um, It's a short read as well. Highly recommend that you all just get a copy and spend an afternoon under a tree just reading it. Um, But I'm definitely excited to talk about this Yeah, John had been recommending this book to me for about six plus years, but I finally read it this week. Was it the first time you read it? Yeah, it's my first time. Really? Oh, wow. So it must have been particularly mind-blowing yeah. then. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. So good. Well, uh, Tim Keller was the longtime pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan, um, and he is also the founder of the Gospel Coalition. Uh, many of you may know the website, but it's a network of Reformed churches uh, and pastors. Yeah, he became a believer during his time at Bucknell University through an intervarsity gathering. And he actually has a master's in divinity from Gordon-Conwell and a doctorate in ministry from Westminster Theological Seminary. So technically, he's Dr. Timothy Keller. Yes, but we probably won't refer to him that way through this uh, episode. Um, Yeah, I mean, I actually think that the first book that I read by him in high school was... Uh, uh, the Reason for God. Um, that was an amazing book. Uh, it's just like a classic apologetic book, but, you know, it's not overly technical. It really speaks to um, kind of the skepticism that he encountered in his uh, churchgoers and he responds. So that's a classic book, obviously. Everyone should read that. But he's written a lot of other books. I mean, I looked on Wikipedia and there's like 50 books on there. Oh, wow. And every single book is so clearly written Mm -hmm. and so connected to the gospel. I mean, we could just do an entire podcast uh, with every episode on just Tim Keller books. Um, But the ones that I'm familiar with, um, Counterfeit Gods is about kind of identifying idolatry in our hearts. Mm-hmm. Uh, we read Generous Justice together, right? I don't I think, think we so. finished yeah. it, but that was so good. Um, I remember um, I read The King's Cross also in high school. I remember I was crouched in a, in a little alley or uh, between shelves uh, in, in the library. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember just like tearing up, like the tears streaming down my face in the library reading this book. Uh, it's just basically, it's just a walking through the book of Mark. Mm-hmm. Um, we have Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. That's a great book. The Meaning of Marriage is like the best book yeah, on marriage. Yeah, um, ever. Um, the Songs of Jesus we did in our uh, small group years ago. Yeah. Uh, Center Church. It's about church plan. I mean, he's just written so many books and... Uh, For those of you that are listening, if you haven't yet read a Tim Keller book, you absolutely should. What should they start with? That's a good question. I mean, I think anything, really. Um, Maybe this book, because it's so short. Yeah, The Prodigal God is a good one to start with. Um, I think the reason for God may give you the impression that he's just kind of intellectual. and Mm. It's very relatable, but I, I would say his books that kind of walk through uh, scripture, like this one and the King's Cross, 
I heard a new book about Jonah came out. Like, I'm sure those would be really great. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, this, the prodigal God is, is basically, as I understand it, some of his books are kind of like he will prepare a sermon series and then he'll compile that all into a book, mm-hmm. basically. And so uh, the prodigal God uh, goes through in depth uh, about the story of the prodigal son, but he kind of turns on, it, on its head where um, our understanding of the prodigal son is, oh, that God shows so much mercy to the the younger son. Mm-hmm. He kind of flips it on his head and shows that um, actually the sto- focus of the story is actually on the older brother. And then he flips that on its head and he says that the ultimate focus is about uh, God's reckless love for us and, and yeah. his pursuit of us. That's why it's called prodigal God. Um, and so... Yeah, really excited to dive in. Yeah, that's like a great summary of what the book is about. Mm-hmm. You kind of give away my most exciting point. What, what is the most exciting point? Well, the prodigal God part, but I, I want to say more <laughs> sure, for now. Sure. Yeah, actually, on the first uh, couple of pages here, um, you know, before the book actually starts, it has the definition of prodigal, which means recklessly extravagant. Mm-hmm. And number two, having spent everything. And as a high schooler, I was so mm-hmm. confused. I was like, well, first of all, I thought that prodigal meant wicked. So I was yeah, like, oh my gosh, like, why is this book called Prodigal God? Um, but again, it, it, the book will, uh, will, where we'll ultimately land in this episode is talking about the recklessly extravagant uh, love of God uh, for us. Yes, so good. Um, so yeah, where do, where do we want to start here? Um, let's just start with talking about how this would have been received, because I think that was Mm. really mind-blowing for me. Mm -hmm. So, in the book, Tim Keller kind of goes through the parable of the prodigal son, which many of us know, but just the idea that there's this uh, young man who asks his dad for his inheritance, which at that time would have meant uh, that he's asking for like something in life that he should not have until his father passes away. Right. So he's like basically saying to his father, like, I wish you were dead. Like, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He gets all of his inheritance, goes off, spends it. And at some point he ends up totally impoverished and realizes that he would rather be home uh, eating. He's working with pigs. And I, I love this line. He's looking at their food. So that kind of gives you a sense of like the bottom. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, really, literally in the rock pit. Yeah. bottom. Yeah. And he's looking at the food and he's like, I wish I could eat this. Maybe mm-hmm. I can go back home. Um, but he knows that he probably can't be a son again. So he kind of says, maybe I can be a hired worker. Mm-hmm. He gets there. His dad, a Middle Eastern man who would not normally do this, runs out to greet him and mm-hmm. welcomes him back, gives him a ring and a feast. And if the story ended there, it would be so awesome. And it would just be about, you know, like God reaching out to those that are lost. But mm-hmm. actually, this is a part that I had not listened to carefully before. Is kind of like this moody elder brother figure that comes comes and realizes this is happening and he's kind of resentful and upset he's like how come you killed the fattened calf Mm -hmm. for my brother and you've never even given me you know anything to share with my friends um and the story ends there with Mm -hmm. the father kind of pleading with the son and asking him um you know saying all that i have is yours you know Mm -hmm. and and kind of it it leaves it in that moment Mm -hmm. so that's the story and i think what really blessed me about this first chapter the people around jesus is how this would have been received by the audience. Right. Because if you think about the parable, uh, 
the the parable ends with the elder brother being outside the feast, right? And it just what just comes to mind right now is whenever Jesus is talking about a feast, it's really talking about the kingdom of heaven, right? It's there are mm-hmm. some that are um, in the feast and some that are not able to come in. And you know, you think about those parables about Jesus, um, you know, or, or a person is has this banquet and it goes out and invites people, and they give all these excuses not to come in, and then finally he's this man sends out all of his servants to go to the street corners and try to get everyone. So like the idea of the feast is the kingdom of heaven. Hmm. And there's a sharp distinction always between those that enter the feast and those that are left outside. Hmm. And I think what Tim Keller kind of focuses on here is that at the end of the parable, the elder brother is the one that's actually outside of the feast, right? Hmm. And so I love what he writes here. He says, you know, because when you hear the prodigal son story, you're always like, oh, God loves me so much. He's running out to get me and greet me and welcome me back in. And that's amazing. That is a mm-hmm. central part of the text. But this is what Tim Keller says about how the original audience would have received this. No, the original listeners were not melted into tears by this story, but rather they were thunderstruck, offended, and infuriated. Jesus' purpose is not to warm our hearts, but to shatter our categories. And the reason why he says this is that he's actually speaking to a group of Pharisees and teachers of the law. And through this story, he's showing them that they are actually the elder brother. And he's pleading with them, will they receive the grace of God and come in uh, instead of rejecting and staying out of the feast? Yeah, so already that is mind boggling or that yeah. was my boggling for me that's like, crazy i never know interpretation yeah i never noticed that he was speaking to the pharisees and the teachers of the law and that the emphasis of the story is actually on the elder brother who's refusing to go into the feast yeah. and that's just that that is mind-blowing honestly yeah yeah um he says the targets of the story are not the wayward sinners but the mm-hmm. religious people who do everything the bible requires mm. jesus is pleading not so much with immoral outsiders as with moral insiders mm-hmm. he wants to show them their blindness narrowness and self-righteousness and how these things are destroying their souls and the people around them right and um you know an interesting point that he makes just from his you know, background being the pastor of uh, Redeemer Presbyterian Church and all of that, um, his personal experience. Um, he kind of drives this point home throughout the book that um, Jesus always attracted mm-hmm. uh, kind of those that were rebellious and wild and considered sinners. Mm-hmm. And it was always the elder brother types, always the religious people that, you know, you just mentioned uh, the people that followed all the rules, they were the ones that were actually offended and they were the ones that were always on the outside looking in instead of what we would expect, which is the sinner and the, you know, the wildly, you know, uh, you know, the wildly rebellious type. You would expect that they would be the ones on the outside, but Jesus reverses that and you can see that throughout his um, ministry. Yeah. So I think, I mean, for 
uh, those of you that are listening and for us, if we're primarily a Christian audience, it's a great, yeah. you know, turn on its head for us to right. kind of ask ourselves, am I an elder brother type figure? Mm-hmm. And, you know, what do I really believe about God's extravagant love and how has it changed my life? Right. So I was actually... I was thinking, I'm not a religious Pharisee, but I was kind of convicted by some of the things we'll talk about. Mm. Yeah, I'm actually curious to hear your thoughts because I know for myself, I mean, we know out of us too, I'm the one that's more, I I struggle more with like, you know, religiosity and legalism and that sort of thing and being very strict with my disciplines and that kind of thing. Mm. But I'm very curious to hear like what kind of stuck out to you, uh, you know, with regard to kind of like this elder brother mentality type but um in chapters three and four uh tim keller really begins to kind of get into the psychology of the elder brother Mm -hmm. and he begins to apply it to us as believers where we can't just assume that oh well i'm not a younger brother i'm fine but we really need to start examining uh for ourselves Um, Yeah, where do we kind of see that elder brother mentality that refuses to go into the feast and just kind of stays out while actually the younger brother is the one that's actually accepted into the feast? Um, So, yeah, chapter three was, I think, really, um, it, it was, again, really revolutionary and groundbreaking to me. He opens up the chapter by talking about two different ways that people uh, kind of uh, find happiness in life. Yeah. Do you want to talk more about that part? Yeah, basically, you know, about the way of moral conformity on the one hand. That's right, yeah. Right? And on the other hand, the way of self-discovery. Right. Yeah. And, um, you know, the moral conformity kind of piece is kind of about, you know, wanting to do what tradition dictates, wanting to do what the authorities say, wanting to do, you know, the religious duties. And the path of self-discovery is kind of the opposite. I get to choose for myself, Uh, you know, I'm a self-made individual and um, that's how I find happiness is finding my own meaning and my own path. Yeah. So in the story, obviously the younger son is the person who's pursuing self-discovery and the older brother is the one who's just um, doing more of the moral conformity. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But I guess uh, what Tim Keller kind of highlights here ultimately is that both of those things both of those paths are wrong whether you are you know forsaking god and kind of like doing your own thing or whether you are following all the rules uh ultimately i think what he's talking about here is the the reality of our hearts and what is really motivating us Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because with the older brother he does everything right but we see that his heart is not actually focused on loving and serving the father. I think the line that really just crushed me <laughs> in the, in the, it's, it's in the actual parable. So I'm flipping there, but the elder brother says, uh, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. Um, And I just, I really kind of understood just like his Mm, anger. But I think even the look, that's like so disrespectful. Like for for at least, I mean, today that is also disrespectful. But in that time to speak to your father like that is really rude. Um, So yeah, I think it just totally shows that He's like, I did all of these things for you. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And even like all of these years I've been slaving for you, I think for right. me that just kind of shows his heart of like he considers like doing the work of God or his father like as drudgery and slaving away and there's no sense of joy. Mm-hmm. So that part really just... Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think right in that moment, a whole lifetime's worth of legalism is revealed and it's all kind of made bare before the father, right? And you can see with that outburst where he's judgmental of the son, he's basically rebuking his father. His, his, his sin is just as great as the younger brother, right? The younger brother was being crazy because he was like, I hope you die and I want your inheritance. <laughs> the older brother's like, I've been slaving for you all these years and I'm, he's, he's rejecting the father's invitation to the feast. I mean, both are really bad, really disrespectful in that culture, also in ours. Um, you know, you, you have to remember that in the Old Testament, it said that if you uh, rebel against your mother or father, you should be stoned to death, you know? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's a big deal. But in that outburst, you can see that the true motivation of the son, the older son, was selfishness. Just like the younger son was selfish and wanting all the money and going and spending it all, the older brother was just as selfish in all of his laboring and trying to gain the favor of the father. Yeah. Um, Tim Keller says, Both sons resented their father's authority and sought ways of getting out from under it. They each wanted to be in a position to tell the father what to do. Um, So they were both actually rebelling. Um, And I love this line. Do you realize then what Jesus is teaching? Neither son loved the father for himself. Mm -hmm. They were both using the father for their own self-centered ends rather than loving, enjoying, and serving him for his own sake. Um, Yeah, so I just love that idea that you can be serving God and doing all of the right things. And in your heart, you can be completely alienated Mm. from him. But you're actually kind of in a worse place than the younger son because you might not even realize. Well, that's what I was just thinking. Like, I think in my own life, I think like just being able, like it's so hard to recognize when I'm in that mentality. Like if you're kind of overtly, you know, rebelling against the Lord, you're kind of making a conscious choice. But for me, I find it like that that kind of elder brother mentality just creeps in. When I'm not actually trying to do things for the Lord for himself, as Tim Keller says, but it's really for myself, mm-hmm. right? And there, in the next chapter, he really begins to like dissect what are the ways, what are the symptoms of a person that kind of has that mentality mm-hmm. and just kind of doing all of these good works just to kind of either, you know, look good in front of others or either to gain God's approval or, um, you know, all these different things, I think where it gets really just uh, intense is when um, Tim Keller starts to kind of describe these stories uh, in literature Mm -hmm. uh, about people that like that have or characters that actually have this um, elder brother mentality. And uh, for example, he, he kind of quotes this character, Hazel Motes, in uh, Flannery O'Connor's book, The Wise Blood. And uh, it, it says of Hazel Motes that there was a deep, black, wordless conviction in him that the way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. Mm-hmm. And like, 
it, it kind of hmm. expresses that human need to like, well, if I'm just good enough and if yeah. I'm just like morally perfect enough, then I can just avoid my relationship with God altogether. And I don't think I've I've gone to that extreme, but certainly there are so many instances in my life that I'm just doing good things just to do those good things. Yeah. And it's not actually out of a selfless love for God. Yeah. Or just the idea that if you do these good things, you have like rights, you're entitled to a good life, you're entitled to answered prayers right. or going to heaven when you die. Mm-hmm. Um and Tim Keller says, you don't need a savior who pardons you by free grace, for you are your own savior. <laughs> My gosh. Now, I, I, you know, I think this book was so refreshing to me personally. And it was such a good balance after reading, well, first of all, Why Revival Terry's, But then, hmm. you know, Francis Chan's Crazy Love. And then Dietrich Bonhoeffer's The Cost of Discipleship. And... You know, over the past weeks, I think both of us have been really kind of, you know, just stirred in our hearts to do more. I mean, like, think about the language I'm using, like, do more for the Lord. Yeah. You know, and I think that's good. And I think it's good for us to yearn to follow Jesus and to surrender everything and to go after wholeheartedly. But the reason why I love Tim Keller and the reason why I love Presbyterians in general is that there is that balance, right? Mm -hmm. That if we focus so much on the human element, Mm -hmm. you know, those saints and martyrs, you know, that Leonard Ravenhill talks about, or if we focus so much on like being passionate for Jesus or focus so much on the cost of discipleship and carrying our cross, we forget that it's actually God who initiates in us to obey him. And it it becomes this just kind of, religious works mentality where I'm just like, yeah, I want to be this like intense missionary or, you know, intense evangelist. But it's like, you forget that the whole point of this is love for God. The point is not the works themselves, but it's works to glorify and please our father in heaven. Yeah, definitely. Um, I love the examples he gives. It kind of reminds me of Francis Chan's book, a lukewarm Christian is like it has kind of the characteristics. Kind of, yeah, mm-hmm. it really sure, helps yep. you to kind of relate to it. But mm-hmm. um, I think the heart of that idea is elder brothers obey God to get things. They don't mm-hmm. obey God to get God Himself mm-hmm. in order to resemble Him, love Him, know Him, and delight Him. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How do you feel like you kind of see that in your own life? Um. Yeah, I don't know. I'm definitely not as, like, religiously inclined as you, <laughs> right? But I think, you know, that those kind of that kind of mindset can kind of creep in mm-hmm. where it's like, but, like, I do all of these things. Mm. And it's almost like the focus comes off of Jesus and God and what he's done for me. And it's more mm-hmm. on, like, what I do or, like, it sounds awful, but how, like, I'm, quote, unquote, like, better than those other people mm whether it's like people outside or like other believers. So I think if I can focus on someone else, I can always feel like, well, I'm doing all of these things or like, mm-hmm. aren't I like a good person, God? But when I read this book, I think I just realized ultimately when I say those kinds of things, the focus is still on me and my mm-hmm. own works and not on God. Um, and I can kind of relate to the, to the to the elder brother, like the part where he's just like, Look, I've been doing all of these things, mm. you know, whenever like things don't go my way, sometimes I can kind of feel like 
but like mm-hmm. I do all of the right things. Like, why am I not getting this thing the way I want it to happen mm-hmm. in the way that I want it to happen in the right. timing that I want, you know? So I, I could relate with that. Yeah. It's that like, it's kind of that like feeling that you feel in your heart. It's like, and I definitely experience this a lot where I'm like, well, what's the point of doing the good things then? Like, and I'm not like, I, I don't think I'm at the point where I'm like, you know, God, I'm trying to do these good things so that I can be rich and famous or so. But it's more just like, you know, he, Tim Keller talks about this, like when something goes wrong in life, sometimes I do have that like inkling. It's like, well, what's the point of all this? Like, why am I striving so much to obey the mm-hmm. Lord? Like, why am I trying so hard? But it's like, Dude, you're forgetting that the whole reason why you're quote unquote trying hard or the whole reason why you're doing these things is out of service to the Lord. And so if the cup that he gives us is suffering uh, instead of blessing, well, that's our, our, you know, our original intent should have been to serve God and have a relationship with him, not to demand some, some sort of blessing or some sort of, you know, circumstances in our lives, you know? That is a really powerful kind of a psychological thing that I think Tim Keller definitely points out. Yeah, kind of reminds me of knowing God a little bit. Just the idea that, like, mm-hmm. you know, it actually comes down to, a, like, a lack of knowledge and intimacy with God. So when we do experience, like, suffering and trials, we're not equipped to handle them. You know, we're like, why, why is this happening to me? Because we don't actually, we haven't actually been serving for the right reasons. because you think that in them you have eternal life, eternal life. It is they that bear witness about me. It is they that bear witness about me. So yeah, he, I mean, he talks at length about Again, what I would say like one major symptom of the elder brother is um, kind of an obedience out of selfishness so that when things go wrong, you get angry, uh, you're just trying to get stuff from God. I think the, the um, symptom that I found more relatable personally uh, was that kind of those with an elder brother spirit, is uh, this, the symptom is joyless, fear-based compliance Mm. um and i can definitely relate to that more when i just feel like and i i know the standard formulation that we're justified by faith alone and not by our works and that you know but and i'm not trying to earn salvation but Mm. i do find that a lot of times like i like for example like i'll be touched by the lord and i feel this kind of burning love. So then I'm like, I, I start to commit to some things like, okay, I want to commit to spending time in prayer, let's say. But then, then I'll sit down and like try to pray like, and the weeks go by, the months go by and it turn. I, I forget why I made that goal in the first place. Hmm. Like then it just becomes about me trying to be good instead of the whole reason why I'm trying to pray is because of that kind of cultivating that love and intimacy. And I do kind of relate with that kind of joyless, fear-based compliance in, in many ways. Yeah. This reminds me of the, the story in the book about Elizabeth Elliot. So she has this kind yeah, of like... this is a great story. Yeah, I love this one. <laughs> so it's, it's apocryphal, meaning like it's not actually in the Bible. Right. But... This is just, like it's... 
it's kind of like a nice like illustration. Yeah. It's not an actual story. Yeah. yeah. But I thought it was so effective. And essentially, you know, Jesus tells his disciples, I'd like you to carry a stone for me with no context. And so everyone picks up, you know, I think Peter is always Peter. Peter <laughs> picks out the smallest stone because it's, you know, small, light, light easy to carry. <laughs> and then after they do whatever they do with it, um, Jesus takes them on a journey and then at noontime it's time for lunch and then he turns each person's stone into bread. Now this is again, it's a story, it's right? A story, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Peter is like, oh, my bread is so small. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So he realizes like, oh no, I should have gotten a bigger stone. Right. So then Jesus again says, carry a stone for me. So then Peter's like, yes, I get it. So he gets like this huge, like, you know, rock that he can barely like carry and he's right. struggling along, along, mm-hmm. along with this rock. And then um, he leads them to this journey. And around supper, he says, now everyone throw your stones into the water. And they do. And then Jesus says, follow me. And then Peter and all of the other people look dumbfounded. And Jesus sighed and said, don't you remember what I asked you to do? You were carrying the stone. Who you were carrying the stone for. So the idea is that. The point of the whole thing is that you were carrying it for him. It didn't mm. matter if it was bread or if it was nothing. Mm. So I think that perfectly illustrates. I think that that is the takeaway, you know, for me from from this book is just coming to a place of daily remembrance about like the inner motivation of my heart. Mm. Like, why am I doing this? It's because I've experienced the joy of salvation, and my life ultimately is not to. The point of it is not to be a perfect person. That's not the main goal. Like the main goal is not to, you know, experience the blessings of God. The main goal is that my life would be a fragrant offering that is pleasing to God. My life is a gift to God for what he has given me, right? And by gift, I'm not, I'm not saying that we're actually giving God something, but you know, that we're sacrificing ourselves as a, as kind of a Thanksgiving offering, right? And, um, I think from reading, honestly, reading this book um, has just changed because, you know, you and I have been kind of juggling various things that we feel like we're called to do yeah. um, in response to Francis Chan and Dietrich Bonhoeffer and all these books. But it, this, this, the product of God has been such an important book for me in this time because now I'm filtering my commitments before the Lord with these lenses of this is all just kind of my thanksgiving to God. That's all it is. It's not trying to be this like superhuman Christian. It's just, I want to show my thanksgiving and I want to show my gratitude to God who saved me. Yeah, definitely. Such a good reminder to check our hearts daily and to yeah. ask ourselves where our service is coming from. Mm-hmm. There's another thing that I, I'm just trying to find it here. There's, I think another thing that he really, um, uh, kind of gets at like in terms of the mentality of the elder brother the elder brother basically does things uh so that they can think of themselves as virtuous or charitable people Hmm. um i know this is kind of related to what we've been saying but the lord has really been doing heart surgery on, on, on my heart recently I would say that's like the single most prominent aspect of the elder brother mentality Hmm. that I experience where I don't necessarily think that I'm doing things, you know, just to like get God's favor or just to get God to bless me. Um, I think what what I've realized about myself personally is that I'm trying to do good things 
just to be able to, I'm not, and, and by you know, like, I'm not trying to like trump it out that I'm a good person, right? But it's just, I guess it's finding assurance in myself rather than assurance in the blood of Jesus. Mm -hmm. It's just like, I have this goal sometimes, maybe this sounds weird, but I have this goal that I just want to be a good person. And that is good. I think that's partially the work of the spirit in my life to sanctify me, but that's also partially idolatry, right? Mm. I want to be good because I love Jesus and not because I want to be a good person or that because I want to aspire to this kind of moral standard. You know, I had this coworker, um, that was explaining how like he doesn't watch TV, he doesn't use social media uh, because he's just so driven by the sense of competition, you know, and he just wants to take life by the horns. And mm -hmm. I think that <laughs> sometimes I kind of feel that like my good works are just from this like place of like inner drive and motivation and competition. And it's not just, it's not this tender love for Jesus. Mm -hmm. And, um, I don't know if you can relate to that at all. Maybe for you it looks different, but I think that, yeah. well, this is a good way for you to understand, you know, what your husband is like and what his inner motivations are. It's I mean, kind of like life is a competition and I need, to, I need to have this high standard, you know. Probably my Enneagram would explain yeah, that. Yeah, I, I was literally thinking you're such a one. <laughs> yeah, that's so different. Is me. that what ones do? Yes. Like, that, that's literally one of the questions. Like, life is a competition and I intend to win it. <laughs> yeah. How much can you relate to this? And you're like, 100%. So. Right. So, yeah, I mean, that same idea of, like, being, having assurance in the father's love really resonated with me. Just because mm -hmm. the older son tells the father, like, you never threw me a party. Mm. And it just shows that there's no, like... Um, mm. It's an insecure relationship. Yeah, exactly. As long as you're trying to earn your salvation by controlling God through goodness, you will never be sure you have been good enough for him. You simply aren't sure God loves and delights in you. So I just, that really resonated with me that, you know, every time something goes wrong, you kind of wonder if it's because you're not doing the right thing or mm -hmm. living the right way. Um, one that I resonated with is, Another sign is that criticism from others doesn't just hurt your feelings, it devastates you. Mm. And this is because your sense of God's love is abstract and has real power in your life. And you mm. need the approval of others to bolster your sense of value. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, and then also, mm -hmm. you know, he talks more about like also guilt. When you do something wrong, your conscience torments you for a long time, even after you repent. Like you didn't yeah. repent deeply yeah, enough. That's, so I that's think, a real problem yeah, for me. Yep. That, yep. that really resonated with me. Mm -hmm. It's kind of that insecure attachment because... You know, that's the lingo that psychologists use with, like, babies. And yeah. When they're securely attached, they can kind of go off and do their own thing and come back to you and, and not, not feel that nervous anxiety. But sometimes, yeah, you're right. Like, I do feel insecurely attached to God, right? Where I don't just rest in his love for me, but it's kind of like if oh, if I'm not doing the right thing, then like, oh, it's devastating. And like, you know, I just feel like a failure and like, the, but like God loves us, you know, and we can just rest as his children and be securely founded upon his love. Right. Hmm. Um, anything else that kind of stuck out about the uh, kind of elder brother mentality before we go into I would say the next, or I would say maybe the climax of the book. Yeah, I think I already mentioned this to some extent, mm -hmm. but just the idea that it's actually more dangerous to be an elder brother than yeah. a younger brother. Yeah. Um, Timothy Keller kind of says, for the younger brother, he actually like just literally physically, morally, he leaves his father and he goes away. Mm -hmm. So he realizes he's 
alienated and far away from the Father. Right. But I think for us elder brothers, because we're just there and we're blind to what's happening, Mm -hmm. we actually can be robbed of that opportunity to have that realization. Mm -hmm. So I think just a reminder that this book can be like a mirror Mm -hmm. for elder brothers to look into and to Mm -hmm. kind of ask themselves what their real heart motivations are Mm. and whether or not we're serving the father from a place of love and security and assurance and joy or whether we're just dutifully doing what we need to do in order to get what we want you know i mean because i grew up in a christian home i never had that rebellious phase you know and so i've basically always lived my life like mostly following the rules at least following the rules the best that i can and yeah, like, man, this, this book is so timely. I feel like it's so timely from the other books that we've read because honestly, like with my inner motivations, it can really go, you know, off to the deep end where it, it becomes so detached from the love of God. I know I'm repeating myself, but I don't know if I'm communicating clearly how revolutionary this book has been. It's such a short book, but it's just truly made me question my mindset with like everything I do in life. Um, and so, yeah. yeah. Now, the next chapter you you really were excited about. Redefining lostness? Oh, no. Or uh, we're going to... The true the, elder brother. Okay, yeah. <laughs> but I think it needs a little bit of context. I'll be really quick. Okay, yeah, what's yeah. the context? Just the idea that like there's two other parables that were just said. Right. And this parable is, if you read it in the context of those three, then you would kind of be like, what? Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. the other parables are the lost coin and the lost and, sheep. And the lost sheep. Mm-hmm. So in both of those parables, someone goes out and looks for the lost sheep. Someone goes out and looks for the lost coin. But in this one, you know, the, the younger brother leaves and he right. kind of just leaves right there's no no one one, like pursuing exactly Mm -hmm. no one goes out to pursue him Mm -hmm. so tim keller kind of tells us that you you know jesus deliberately left someone out of this parable Mm -hmm. and that person is the elder brother Mm -hmm. and he calls the chapter that i love the most the true elder brother Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah because um you know tim keller argues that and i never thought of this way before but Tim Keller argues that uh, Jesus is making a is making an allusion uh, to the story of Cain and Abel, right? Mm, Where Cain yeah, is like, funny. you know, am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord is like, I mean, basically, the Lord's like, yes, you are, <laughs> like, you're uh, Abel's older brother, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and Tim Keller argues, based on the historical context, that basically the listeners at the time would have been shocked that the elder brothers just callous basically and not doing anything mm-hmm. uh and i love this story that he tells about kind of like the ideal um older brother figure mm-hmm. that we kind of all yearn for one of uh tim keller's mentors uh at westminster edmund Clowney. i think i've heard lectures by him before mm-hmm. um but there was this uh, true story of a young man who was a u.s soldier uh missing in action during the vietnam war um, and when they couldn't like figure out what was going on and he was lost, the older brother flew to Vietnam and he risked his life searching through the jungles and the battlefields for his lost younger brother. And actually, uh, this kind of quest to find the younger brother became so prominent that both sides in the war, uh, agreed not to lay a hand on him. And they were so inspired by his dedication and, he was basically just known simply as the brother. 
And it's kind of that like archetype that we yearn for or we know that what is an older brother supposed to do for the younger brother? Mm. The older brother is supposed to risk everything to go after that younger brother and to make sure that he's safe. Yeah, so I want to find a good quote for this because it's my favorite part and I don't want to to ruin it. So a little bit more context before I go into the older brother, but just the idea that Tim Keller argues that this story is not just about the older brother and the younger brother, but it's about this, the idea of the gospel. Mm-hmm. Um, and he kind of explains, you know, just to give some context for the older brother, why he actually, you know, he should be kind of angry. Um, when when the father says, all that I have is yours, he literally means that because when his younger brother left, he had to have given up some part of their estate and sold that stuff off. So literally they have a diminished amount of property. So So there's a cost. And I think we often focus on like, Right. You know, the younger brother comes in and he's restored with a robe and a ring, and that's awesome. But actually, like there was a, a huge cause. There's right. a there's a much smaller inheritance for the older brother now. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So the younger brother's restoration is free to him, but it comes at a huge cost to mm-hmm. the elder brother. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that in a way, there's a flawed elder brother in the story because Jesus wants us to imagine and yearn for that true elder brother, which mm-hmm. he talked about, that archetype that we all wish and desire. Um, and ultimately, he argues that 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 elder brother is Jesus mm-hmm. for us. Yeah, um, kind of in line with what you said, Tim Keller says, indeed, it is only at the elder brother's expense that the younger brother can be brought back in. But Jesus leaves it on a cliffhanger. Who's going to take the expense? Mm-hmm. Because it's not the the elder brother in the story. Who the elder brother actually is, is Jesus. Because when he died for us on the cross, he was stripped naked of the robe that uh, we were clothed in, right? Uh, when, when he was nailed on the cross, Jesus was treated as an outcast. You know, it makes me think about... Um, in the book of Hebrews, how it says that Jesus was the sacrifice that was made outside of the tent, right? And and that Jesus was completely outcast. Jesus uh, suffered. Jesus took on the punishment that we deserved. Um, and Tim Keller makes the point that there was no other way for the Heavenly Father to bring us in except at the expense of our true elder brother. And when we realize that Jesus has given up so much for us, that he was stripped naked so that we could be clothed with righteousness, that he was crushed so that we could be children to receive the signet ring of authority as God's true children, that he made the way for us to have that relationship with God the Father, that when we have that gospel understanding deeply rooted in our hearts, our response will be to have to be true children of God, not rebelling like the younger brother did, but also not doing this legalistic kind of like fearful and, uh, you know, overly moralistic obedience, but that we can have that true loving relationship uh, with God where we pour out everything as a free will offering. Yeah. He says, there is no other way for the Heavenly Father to bring us in except at the expense of our true elder brother. How can the inner workings of the heart be changed from a dynamic of fear and anger to that of love, joy, and gratitude? Here is how. You need to be moved by the sight of what it costs to bring you home. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I love this uh, John Newton hymn that he quotes. 
Our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, hmm. since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. Yeah. You know, that is something that I kind of picked up on in, in Crazy Love, where Francis Chan said the response to finding out that you're a lukewarm Christian is not to like grit your treat teeth and try so hard mm -hmm. but the response is to ask god lord would you fill me with greater love for you yeah and i think this book kind of is a roadmap for how we can have that love for god it's when we when we experience the depth of the sacrifice that jesus made for us mm. it's that that pleasure and duty are joined together when we see god's beauty and it's it's a permanent uh kind of uniting of our hearts and our will, where it's not like our will is kind of railing against our heart or our emotions are leading us one way, but it's that perfect marriage of the two. Well, were you quoting something when you said that posture and duty part? Yeah, the John Newton hymn. Oh, I was like, wow, that's a good word. <laughs> no, I just told you that I read this. <laughs> I forgot already. You're like not listening to what I'm saying right now. No, no, I before, did. Before I read this quote and then you were like, well, as Tim Keller said, and then you read the exact same line that I had just read. What? The <laughs> I didn't even notice that. <laughs> but it just sounded so good. I was like, he must be quoting something, but he's not looking this, down uh, at his book. <laughs> The, the the there was no way for the father there was there there were there was no other I was like there was no other way for the heavenly father to bring us right. in except at the expense of our true elder brother and you're, you're right. like let me read this quote and then you just repeated what I said I was listening that's so funny um, but yeah no I did not make up the pleasure and duty part uh, okay yeah so it was dome. it's a quote nope. from yes. him okay I yep. was like very impressed it's like wow we should start quoting John Cho on our Instagram <laughs> <laughs> but yeah I don't know yes that's awesome mm -hmm. um and this is a new quote that you have not read you should okay let's okay let's let's hear it yeah it says uh, um, hopefully. The choice before us seems to be either turn from God and pursue the desires of our hearts like the younger brother mm -hmm. or repress desire right. and do our right. moral duty. Mm -hmm. um, but kind of like you were saying, how like the beauty is what transforms us. But the sacrificial, costly love of Jesus on the cross changes that. When we see the beauty of what he has done for us, it attracts our hearts to him. We realize that the love, the greatness, the consolation and the honor we have been seeking in other things is here. And that beauty eliminates our fear. So it's just the idea mm -hmm. that if we gaze upon Jesus mm -hmm. and his beauty, that ultimately can be the thing that changes our heart motivation so that we're no longer driven by fear, um, like the younger brother or the older brother. Uh, and instead, our motivation is just that we have understood the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. We have mm -hmm. beheld his beauty and that can motivate us for a lifetime. Perfect love casts out fear. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it'll be good to close here um, with just kind of an anecdote because, again, it's it's kind of, I mean, there's a lot that we could talk about more in, in the last uh, two chapters here. Um, you know, redefining hope. This, is there a quote that you want to read from that chapter? Um, no, no, that's okay. You know, basically the idea that Daniela really loved this idea about, um, you know, uh, we all long for this home, you know, and... But when we actually go home, we realize that home is not actually what we long for. We long mm. for the heavenly home. And I mean, there's a lot of good stuff here. But I think the main thrust of this book for me is being reconnected to the gospel message uh, so that we have that spontaneous love for God. And um, 
there's a story, um, and I think this, again, this is a good kind of closing anecdote. Um, there's a story um, that Tim Keller shares of one of the people in his church. And, you know, basically this, this uh, lady is talking about how uh, free grace is like the scary idea. And mm. Tim Keller's like, why is free grace scary? And she says, well, if it were up to my works then God couldn't really demand much of me because I'm already doing the work. Mm. It's that it's that kind of, again, the elder brother Love mentality of, I do so much, so I deserve X, Y, and Z. Yeah. But then she says, but if it's really true that I'm a sinner saved by sheer grace at God's infinite cost, then there's nothing he cannot ask of me. Mm-hmm. And that's where the, you know, everything that we've been reading about Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Francis Chan and all that, that's where it's kind of kind of married to the free grace of God where uh you know people think that oh well if you just you know preach the the free grace of God then doesn't that make you lukewarm no when you recognize how much it cost God to give us his free grace then we realize that God can ask anything of us and we should be uh ready to respond in whatever he has asked of us yeah that's great yeah and so in fact he actually um quotes a little bit of Dietrich Bonhoeffer here, a little callback to the cost of yeah, discipleship yeah, I, where, I read that. you know, he talks about, you know, that tension between costly and, and free grace. Um, and so, I mean, I feel like I've gotten so much personal application out of this book. I think for me, when I think about my commitments before the Lord, I want to continually check day by day, kind of what is that inner motivation and do I have the symptoms of the elder brother? Um, and so, yeah. Yeah. I think for me, I just want to just be re, I don't know, just it's a reminder that we never graduate from the gospel, like mm. that it's actually like it, it's yeah. the basis for all of our faith as Christians. So I just want to be re like awakened mm-hmm. to that reality. Like when I first realized the gospel when I was 18 and I realized like the depth of my sin and how much I needed God, just, mm. I don't know. I just, my my prayer is that I would just be, reawaken to that and that I would be I don't know that I would be longing for that that feast that he talks about how you know in the parable of the lost son he kind of ends with there's the party because someone has been found that was lost mm-hmm. and just um when you know when Jesus comes back we also have a feast waiting for us the mm-hmm. marriage supper of a lamb so just I don't know that my heart would be longing for that feast and that home and that I wouldn't be like incorrectly placing that desire in other things and that i would be realizing that that's actually what i'm longing for and that it's only because of jesus that i have that hope and that it's something i can put my trust in and that reality and that relationship can drive everything i do for god and with god amen well thank you all for listening um and uh, we hope that you will go out and try to find this book, borrow it from a friend as usual. I mean, this is definitely a short read and I uh, hope you've been blessed through this episode. As always, see you next week. That you may have. All music for our podcast is used by permission from theversusproject.com. Today's song is John chapter 5, verses 39 through 40, and it's performed by Joel Limpic. Uh, Once again, thanks for tuning in this week, and we hope that you'll join us next time. It's about me. It is they that bear witness.
this day 